Thanks for tuning in to Gin and Tantra. This is the first part of a four-part series where we interview one Peter Cadence, philanthropist, entrepreneur, husband, and father of three. In this first episode, we detail his early life and some of the contributing factors that would lead him to a life of entrepreneurship and reciprocity. We discuss his views on poverty and the numerous pathways to it, in addition to the massive effect of the so-called war on drugs. Peter Cadence currently serves as the chairman of the Cadence Family Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to closing the pervasive wealth and education gaps in the United States. He retired in 2018 as a CEO of Green Thumb Industries, one of the largest publicly traded legal cannabis operators in the United States with a current market capitalization of over $3 billion. Peter Cadence believes deeply in and actively leads organizations that seek to transform lives and strengthen communities. Serving as a chairman of Streetwise, one of the largest homeless aid organizations in Chicago, he currently serves as a chairman emeritus at Streetwise and sits on several other boards in the nonprofit and for-profit space. Pete was awarded the Trailblazer Chicago Award by the CARO program in 2019 the Catalyst Man of the Year by Streetwise in 2015, the Distinguished Alumnus for Citizenship in 2010 by his college alma mater, Bucknell University, where he earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science, and a Distinguished Alumnus by his high school, Ottawa Hills High in Toledo in 2019. He was also named one of 40 Under 40 by Crane's Business in 2012. Peter Cadence is a 2019 Henry Crown Fellow of the Aspen Institute. We are pleased to have him on. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Gin and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail your spirit has been longing for. Now isn't that refreshing? I want you to get to Uh, hey, fellow GNTers, those of us like our spirituality with a twist, as you will already have heard, and what I imagine will be a very long intro to this episode, to try to outline all of his ongoing good deeds, we have a very special guest today, philanthropist Pete Cadence. Thanks so much for coming on, Pete. Thanks for having me, guys. So in interest of kind of like jumping on in, uh, we make the, the most of the time we have together. Uh, with our guests, we are usually interested in where they come from and how they got to where they are now both because that's just interesting, uh, but also because we hope it's kind of inspiring to others. You know, when you find people kind of blazing their own trail and doing their own things and following the things they believe in, you know, I think that's inspiring to other people to hear those stories. So, um, uh, so with you, you had this amazing sort of early life story uh, for when you were seven traveling the world with your family, this, this experience that kind of seems like it almost set a tone for a big part of your life. But I thought maybe before asking you to share that, maybe you could talk a little bit about your family, where you grew up, uh, how that affected you, and then maybe we'll catch your 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 your, your great story from being from a, from seven. Sure. 
Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I um, look, man, I had a great childhood. I grew up in a middle class family. My my dad was a, a professor uh, at a, a local university in Toledo, Ohio, University of Toledo. My mom was a four term elected official. Um, so between a teacher and an, and a, and an elected uh, a, a female elected uh, to office in, in my community, um, the highest ranking female ever elected to office in our community. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I understood from a young age a lot about civic duty and, and moral imperative and obligations to do good. My parents weren't rich, um, but they were rich in education and they were rich in uh, love and they were rich in civic duty. Um, and they passed all those on to me. I'm the youngest of four kids. I have a, a twin brothers who are 14 years my senior and a sister who's nine years my senior. So I was, by the time I was kind of like in kindergarten, I was an only, only child growing up, even though I had three other siblings. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from my parents and my family, lots of love to go around, played basketball growing up, uh, was a good student class president, uh, always uh, kept on the straight and narrow and didn't really get in get much trouble. Although I made trouble, I just didn't get caught for it. But, mm. um, you know, I, and uh, I, I went on to Bucknell University in Pennsylvania and had a great run there too. And I'm happy to tell you anything more you want to know, but a pretty ordinary kid just with uh, a lot of love and a lot of prioritization around education and civic duty surrounding me. So did you come from a family where your dad knew business? Was he in the, uh, was he an economist? Was he teaching in business? Or did he come from some completely different academic field? My dad was a, a law professor, but he focused on economic development and venture capital as, as it pertained to law. Um, and one of the reasons eventually later on in life that I became an entrepreneur is because my dad actually, my dad's a genius, literally. Um, he graduated second in his class from Stanford Law School. He is, even at 86 years old today, one of the smartest, most intellectually capable people I know. But I always kind of felt like my dad didn't maximize his potential. Um, and uh, my dad had an incredible amount of potential and an incredible business instinct. He just didn't have a lot of risk tolerance. So one of the things that inspired me to go off and become an entrepreneur is kind of my, my it was like a little bit of a revolt. I saw my super capable father not ever really making the money or taking the entrepreneurial risks that he could have. I was like, I'm going to do exactly opposite of that. Um, and uh, you know, he, so he had a business mindset, but he really taught law and the the construct of how business and law kind of work together. Well, as I understand it then, you know, in the story that really struck me learning about you was, you know, he did get a sabbatical. So you did the kind of like a family excursion, it seems like to see the world. And then you had this kind of amazing experience that you share. So yeah, maybe I'll ask you to share that with our listeners too. Yeah. So when I was, uh, when I was seven, my family, uh, just because my brothers were so much older, they were already out of college, but my mom, my dad, my sister and I, Took a trip around the world. Um, my dad studied in um, 20 plus countries around the world. Um, and uh, it was a nine month journey. And I saw poverty like very, you know, like no kid, middle class kid from Toledo, Ohio had ever seen. I mean, I was in red communist China seeing the militiamen march in the Communist Party militiamen march. I was in um, you know, the poorest slums um, in Moscow. I was in, um, I was in the poorest uh, uh, slums and riding down the canals in Bangkok, which at the time was not the contemporary city that it is today. Um, and through that, I just saw poverty 
through a lens which, with which I had never been exposed to poverty. But the interesting one, I, I tell the story about, I was floating down the Klong canals in Bangkok, which are ripe with poverty and squalor. I mean, literally kids my age were bathing in the canals, the same canals that they defecated in, the, the same canals that you know dead animals were floating in, the same canals they, they, they cleaned their produce in, believe it or not. Um, and I saw all this go down and I just kept remarking to my parents that these little boys and girls my age were smiling and playing and laughing fun and laughing and having fun. They didn't know they were poor. They didn't know they lived in school. They just didn't know any different. I knew they were poor. Um, and it, it just gave me this like paradigm and perspective, this anthem. So for the rest of my life, from that moment forward, I remember it like it was yesterday, even though it was 36 years ago, I had, I developed this anthropological fascination with poverty. Um, how does someone become poor? Um, why does someone become poor? Um, how can we help people who are poor get out of that situation? Um, so yeah, it, it was a life altering moment at a very young age for me. Yeah, it's like kind of amazing when you kind of trace back in people's lives that it can be those distinctive moments like that. That's itself is really fascinating to me, you know, that even as a kid, you could recognize something like that. You can kind of take it to heart, right? And you can influence your life going forward. And I guess the other part that strikes me a little bit is, you know, uh, you know I, I, I'm in Chicago, I can see poverty in Chicago, you know, and, you know, but they're also one of the things in traveling is you get, you see that in other places around the world too, and you can kind of take that in, you know, I can, you know, as you know, I was already an adult, but I was, you know, you go traveling like in the Yucatan or something like that, and you see poverty that's just, you know, gut wrenching, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's one of the advantages of really traveling, going other places, seeing things. Of course, we can see that within our own cities, but you know, if you go to other places, you get the other side of that too, just as a global phenomenon, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I think, and I think importantly, understanding the different permutations of poverty is important. I mean, there's all sorts of different permutations of poverty just in our city alone. Um, but I was, you know, I, I think I was born with, with one significant gift. And that was what I tell people is the gift of the question why, which is to say that instead of just seeing poverty in motion, you know, walking by a homeless man in downtown Chicago and giving him a dollar and kind of going, along, going on my merry way, I always have and always will probably ask myself, why is that person sitting there on that, you know, cold concrete in the middle of winter begging for a dollar? You know, like, it's not just that, you know, because they're not less human than me. They're not less of an American citizen than me. They're no better or worse than me. But why are they there on that cold concrete? And why am I here, rich guy, you know, walking down the street to my next meeting, you know? And I think just that gift of like asking yourself that question, um, which then relates to a degree of empathy that, you know, I think I do have, like it's, um, it's a powerful thing, but lots of different permutations of poverty and uh, some self-imposed and some imposed by society, frankly, here in the US. Yeah, so what I really like, there's uh, all kinds of things I like about the way that you think about this. You know, Daniel was joking before we turned the, the mics on for official recording, that would be a bunch of head nods bobbing right that we all agree with each other so but um i like the way you think about it as um you did two things that strike me one was that you kind of did something with this you had this realization and you kind of followed through in it so you know when i've listened to you talk about this you know you you went and you i think you worked in a homeless shelter or you visited a homeless shelter when you're in high school you kind of made the point of like doing that right to have those experiences yeah but it wasn't it wasn't um 
I think sometimes people do those things to like say they did it or like prove it to other people. I gotta say, like, look, I don't play golf. I I, I don't have hobbies. Like literally, like I don't drive fast cars. I don't fly private jets. I I don't, you know, um, I'm not a sailor. I'm not a golfer. I literally don't have hobbies. My hobby has always been the, the hobby of having an insatiable curiosity with the world and the people who occupy it, right? And most notably with people who are poor and underserved. Frankly, I have way more fun with people who are, you know, different races and, you know, poor, because I think the substance and the dialogue is so much more interesting, frankly, with those people. Because they're dealing with real world world Darwinian issues, not the super not the superficial bullshit that we all deal with. You know, um, my iPhone broke. I mean, you know, come on. You know, like I need to go to the Verizon store and fix it. You know, like it's not a Darwinian issue. Maybe in today's society it feels like it is, but it's not. And um, uh, and so I, I just I've always had a real keen interest in doing things. I went to that homeless shelter in my senior year in high school, and I wrote my senior thesis, which I got an A plus on to graduate from high school, because I thought it was weird way in a sick way i thought it was fun like meeting those people and hearing their stories and video it was a crazy cool experience for me and i really enjoyed it what was your research question just out of curiosity because obviously you've been thinking about this for a long time you've been thinking about this even in your teens so were you thinking about causes of poverty or you know what what was i mean it's a long time ago but obviously it's setting the seeds for who you are as an adult you kept following this through it was always that was the moment when I was 18. That was the moment. It was always this anthropological fascination with the pathways to poverty. How does someone become poor? And what, what I know now, years later, is that poverty really starts in utero. So it's like poverty doesn't start on like day, you know, uh, you know, on, on in year 17 when you get your first, you know, felony. You know, it, it probably started in utero. But but nonetheless, you know, hearing people's stories. There was a great um, radio commentator in Chicago, famous commentator. My father grew up in Chicago, listened to him. His name was Studs Terkel. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Studs Terkel, right? Oh, for sure. They just had an exhibit at the MCA where they had all of his, his studio was there. They had all of his old recordings. You can find them online. It's beautiful. Yeah. My father loved Studs Terkel and I grew up listening to Studs Terkel. My dad would play the records. And Studs Terkel was famous for, he didn't interview celebrities. He interviewed Joe the plumber. He interviewed ordinary people. And he dove into their story. And so I always was interested in how did you, how did you end up here in this cot in a homeless shelter in Toledo, Ohio? What was the pathway here? And it was the first time I really understood that the war on drugs, because the vast, vast, vast majority of the people were black, male, middle-aged with a drug felony. That was, I'm not gonna say it was 100% of the pathways to this homeless shelter that I was at when as a, as a teenager, but it was 75% or more, right? And so that's when I realized we had created this system. It was, you know, the Reagan era had passed. We were into the Bush era, but it was still the war on drugs. We had created this system to intentionally subordinate people, especially people of color. It was called the war on drugs. And we used drugs as a, as a hook to be able to arrest people and subordinate them. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that really took on a life of its own in my mind. It's something I thought about almost every day. Yeah, it's kind of, oh, go ahead, Daniel. Sorry. So, and from, you know, coming from somebody who's, served in the military, I will say one of the themes that is coming through Pete is um, exposure. And so being exposed to these things, whether at, you know, different stages in life or, or through media or through personal relationships, the exposure to other people's situations and their life stories 
is I think one of the things that lets us connect to the different fabrics, you know, of, of life that, that could potentially be expressed and lived through. And it's, it's almost impossible for me, from my perspective, and I think we probably all agree that like, once you feel that and you see it from a person, not just like on a documentary on TV, but like you're speaking with somebody and you're like, damn, this is not, this is not some weird like labyrinth of things that happen to you. That's only for you. This could be anybody. This could be anybody. And uh, I, I think one of the things that doesn't happen enough in, in our culture is exposure. We're not exposed to the underbelly of our own society. And then when we are, we kind of push it off as like, oh, that's just a bad area. But then when you leave this country and you go somewhere else, like for me, what you experienced in Thailand, I didn't, I did in Thailand also, but especially in India, for sure, was like a whole nother thing, you know, being going to the Ganges, which is a beautiful river upstream, but downstream, everyone's like living in it. And you're just like, man, how, how is this even a thing? And you're like, oh, this is actually the way the bulk of the world is. And seeing it in person is so far different than seeing it through pictures. And it change, it just changes you. It just changes you. And you can't justify it anymore in your mind and say, oh, well, that's that part of town. Or those are those people. Like, no, these are people. And this is happening everywhere. And it should be a reminder to us to, to help when we can, not because we should, but because it's kind of our duty to do so. That's what so could have said it better myself. I had this thing, um, you know, when I was in my, you know, my late teens, uh, early twenties, and I thought about this a lot listening to, uh, you know, your uh, talks, Pete. I had uh, I was working on loading trucks right at Roosevelt and Jefferson in Chicago. So it was my night job. I was unloading trucks and I was doing this thing, and so it's one of those exposure questions that you're talking about, Daniel. You're with all kinds of people, you know, uh, working those kinds of jobs, which are you know really physically demanding mm -hmm. and um, I had uh, one of my work friends, and we had a really serious conversation. You know, uh, he asked me my thoughts, and I was like, just had to shrug my shoulders because what am I supposed to say? But he was a guy I knew, and he had a girlfriend who had gotten pregnant, and he didn't want to like bolt. You know, he very much was like, I don't want to do that. And um, and then he said, well, you know, I'm not really a student and I don't know if I'm gonna be able to be a student and work at the same time, that's not realistic for me. And then he was honestly thinking, you know, uh, should I go and be involved in some kind of drug trade thing? Cause I could do it and probably make some money but there's a lot of risk involved, you know? And we had a real honest conversation. So it's me as this, you know, white guy working in this place, him as this black man working in this place and we're talking about this issue. And I was like, okay, I can, I hear where you're coming from and I could, it's an interesting thing because I could understand because we we're both doing the same work and he was saying, well, I'm looking down really like doing this kind of work for the rest of my life, you know, and we were both pissed off doing it anyways, because, you know, that's demanding work and you have this feeling like, okay, I'm just going to like be physically kind of used for this thing, you know, and then, I mean, I could go on and do something else. It's a lot, you know, it's easy for me to do that compared to him for sure. Right. And that's what happened. You know, but for him, it was like, this is the decision he's making. And I was like, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but I, you know, I, I tried to listen and, and, uh, you know, you hear those kinds of stories from people that, you know, and uh, you take that to heart, right? Yeah. And that's, um, that, that's exactly why I have named my, my charities, my educational charities, HOPE, which is an acronym. It stands for helping our population educate. But more than that, even it's the definition of the word HOPE, which is that Hope is an incredibly powerful thing. And I always tell people like, you know, if you're a farmer, every morning you get up at 4.15 in the morning, early, right? or even for us early birds here, 
you know, and you, you plant your seeds and you till your soil and every day you go out and nothing's growing. And three months later, you're every day, 4.15 in the morning, three months later, you go out and there's nothing, there's nothing even sprouting. At some point you're going to say, screw this. Like, why am I keep, why am I continuing to get up at 4.15 in the morning? Well, that is the way that many of our black and brown and underserved children in public school in America feel because when your mom's, you know, a, a drug addict or, you know, is working five jobs and your dad's in jail or dead and you have no financial means and your parents aren't educated and no one's ever been to college, you know, the school you're going to is a, a shitty public school, you know, like, and you see no path, why then should you apply yourself? Like, if you see no path, if, if you can't map your life, your career, your, 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 your work in high school, if you can't map that to your career, then why should I keep working? Why should I even try to get A's? Who gives a shit? I'm just here because the law tells me I need to be here. And so that is why hope and the dignity of hope of having a bright light at the end of the tunnel, in my opinion, makes a big difference. And that's why I'm spending most of my philanthropic, philanthropic dollars and time focused on initiatives that give kids hope. So that irrespective of what's going on with their families or their communities, they have a pathway out of poverty. And, um, and I believe that that's kind of what you're talking about. The, the people you were working with on those docks, they didn't have hope. And so they just gave up. I'm going to go to the streets and sell drugs. I need to make money. It's a Darwinian existence. Yeah, he was asking himself a very realistic question. I was just listening like, okay, I can hear where you're coming from. This is a very realistic question you're asking, right? Yeah. yeah. Since it's my role in the podcast, I sometimes do this. There's these psych studies on learned helplessness. And you know, they're cruel. But you, you put an animal in a cage and you close the door and you shock the animal and you know the animal learns that it's gonna get shocked and there's no way out. And then even if you open the door, that's so deeply conditioned that the animal will just kind of still sit there, right? Oh, and so Eric, you're in that's, a situation- that's too real. That's just too real, Eric. Is, you know, <laughs> I don't think they're ready for all that. You know, the ways out through the door, Confucius said that, right? But sometimes you need somebody else to help you get out through the door, right? Mm-hmm. To right. let you even know, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. As always, please like, subscribe, and share. For any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover on the show, please email us at ginandtantra at gmail.com. For Eric, this is Daniel. We'll catch you in the next one. Peace.